Welcome to Read By, where today's finest authors read what matters to them, from their homes to yours. In this episode, Francisco Goldman reads from Vladimir Nabokov's Panin. To learn more from Goldman about his choice, check out the episode description. And now, Read By, Francisco Goldman. I'm going to read a uh, fairly short passage from Nabokov's novel Penin. It's a scene that, when you come across it late in the book, sort of always really staggers me. Um, and I think it's a good selection to read now, especially when you think about, well, the way uh, certain kinds of loss live on inside us in the present, the way the past reasserts itself in the present, the way lost people come back to us. Um, in this passage, Timofey Pinin, a, a Russian emigre professor at Waynedale College somewhere in the Northeast, a kind of lonely, aging, uh, often a figure of fun on the faculty at Waynedale and everywhere else he goes, has just learned to drive and he's driven to the estate, sometimes called uh, Cook's Castle. Uh, it belongs to a wealthy uh, emigre named Alexander Petrovich Kukolnikov, otherwise known as Al Cook. It's called the Pines or Cook's Castle, and there emigres, Russian emigres, gather intellectuals, liberals, uh, former aristocrats, uh, artists, and this is the first time Pinin has gone there. He's just trounced everybody in a croquet match in his kind of aggressively, uh, uh, slightly discomforting way. And I'll just start at the top of page 131 of my edition and read on, which you'll catch the last bit of the croquet match, and on into this um, little scene in which the past comes back and intermingles with the present. Okay. Plaints and protests, however, would mingle with the applause when Penin with brutal indifference, croqueted or rather rocketed an adversary's ball, placing in contact with it his own ball and firmly putting his curiously small foot upon the ladder, he would bang at his ball so as to drive the other up the country by the shock of the stroke. When appealed to, Susan said it was completely against the rules, but Madame Shlopiansky insisted it was perfectly acceptable and said that when she was a child, her English governess used to call it a Hong Kong. After Penin had told the stake and all was over, and Varvara accompanied Susan to get the evening tea ready, Penin quietly retired to a bench under the pines. A certain extremely unpleasant and frightening cardiac sensation, which he had experienced several times throughout his adult life, had come upon him again. It was not pain or palpitation, but rather an awful feeling of sinking and melting into one's physical surroundings, sunset, red bowls of trees, sand, still air. Meanwhile, Rosa Shoplyansky, noticing Pinin sitting alone and taking advantage of this, walked over to him. Sidite, sidite, don't get up, and sat down next to him on the bench. In 1916 or 1917, she said, you may have had occasion to hear my maiden name, Geller, from some great friend of yours. No, I don't recollect, said Pinin. It is of no importance, anyway. I don't think we ever met, but you, but you knew well my cousins, Grisha and Mira Belochkin. They constantly spoke of you. He is living in Sweden, I think. And, of course, 
You have heard of his poor sister's terrible end. Indeed I have, said Penin. Her husband, said Madame Spolyansky, was a most charming man, Samuel Lvovich, and I knew him and his, and his first wife, Sveltana Chertok, the pianist, very intimately. He was interned by the Nazis separately from Mira and died in the same concentration camp as did my elder brother, Misha. You did not know Misha, did you? He was also in love with Mira once upon a time. Tisha Gotov, tea is ready, called Susan from the porch in her funny, functional Russian. Timofi, Rozhochka, Tishai. Penin told Madame Spolyansky he would follow her in a minute, and after she had gone, he continued to sit in the first dusk of the arbor, his hands clasped on the croquet mallet he still held. Two kerosene lamps cozily illuminated the porch of the country house. Dr. Pavel Antonovich Pinin, Timofey's father, an eye specialist, and Dr. Yakov Grigorievich Belochkin, Mida's father, a pediatrician, could not be torn away from their chess game in a corner of the veranda, so Madame Belochkin had the maid serve them there, on a special small Japanese table near the one they were playing at, their glasses of tea and silver holders, the curtain way with black bread, the garden strawberries, Zemlianica, and the other cultivated species, Klubnica, Hotbo, or green strawberries, and the radiant golden jams, and the various biscuits, wafers, pretzels, zuibaks. Instead of calling the two engrossed doctors to the main table at the other end of the porch, where sat the rest of the family and guests, some clear, some grating into a luminous mist. Dr. Belochkin's blind hand took a pretzel. Dr. Penin's seeing hand took a rook. Dr. Pelochkin munched and stared at the hole in his ranks. Dr. Penin dipped an abstract zooey back into the hole of his tea. The country house that the Belochkins rented that summer was in the same Baltic resort near which the widow of General N. let a summer cottage to the Penins on the confines of her vast estate marshy and rugged, with dark woods hemming in a desolate manner. Timofey Pnin was again the clumsy, shy, obstinate 18-year-old boy waiting in the dark for Mira. And despite the fact that logical thought put electric bulbs into the kerosene lamps and reshuffled the people, turning them into aging emigres and securelessly, hopelessly, forever wire-netting the lighted porch, my poor Pnin with hallucinatory sharpness, imagined Mira slipping out of there into the garden and coming toward him among the tall tobacco flowers whose dull white mingled in the dark with that of her frock. This feeling coincided somehow with the sense of diffusion and dilation within his chest. Gently he laid his mallet aside and, to dissipate the anguish, started walking away from the house through the silent pine grove from a car which was parked near the garden tool house and which contained presumably at least two of his fellow guest children, there issued a steady trickle of radio music. Jazz, jazz, they always must have their jazz, those youngsters, muttered Pinin to himself, and turned into the path that led to the forest and river. He remembered the fads of his and Mira's youth, the amateur theatricals, the gypsy ballads, the passion she had for photography, where were they now, those artistic snapshots she used to take, pets, clouds, flowers, 
an April glade with shadows of birches and wet sugar snow, soldiers posturing on the roof of a boxcar, a sunset skyline, a hand holding a book. He remembered the last day they had met on the Neva embankment in Petrograd, and the tears and the stars and the warm rose-red silk lining of her caracal muff. The Civil War of 1918-22 separated them. History broke their engagement. Timofi wandered southward to join briefly the ranks of Denikin's army, while Mira's family escaped from the Bolsheviks to Sweden and then settled down in Germany, where eventually she married a fur dealer of Russian extraction. Sometime in the early 30s, Penin, by then married too, accompanied his wife to Berlin, where she wished to attend a congress of psychotherapists, and one night at a Russian restaurant on their Kurfürstendamm, he saw Mira again. They exchanged a few words. She smiled at him in the remembered fashion from under her dark brows, with that bashful slyness of hers, and the contour of her prominent cheekbones and the elongated eyes and the slenderness of her arm and ankle were unchanged, were immortal. And then she joined her husband, who was getting his overcoat at the cloakroom, and that was all. But the pang of tenderness remained, akin to the vibrating outline of verses you know, you know, but cannot recall. What chatty Madame Spolyansky mentioned had conjured up Mira's image with unusual force. This was disturbing. Only in the detachment of an incurable complaint and the sanity of near death could one cope with this for a moment. In order to exist rationally, Penin had taught himself during the last ten years never to remember Mira Belochkin, not because in itself the evocation of a youthful love affair, fatal and brief, threatened his peace of mind. Alas, Recollections of his marriage to Liza were imperious enough to crowd out any form of romance, but because, if one were quite sincere with oneself, no conscience, and hence no consciousness, could be expected to subsist in a world where such things as Mira's death were possible. One had to forget, because one could not live with the thought that this graceful, fragile, tender young woman with those eyes, that smile, those gardens and snows in the background had been brought in a cattle car to an extermination camp and killed by an injection of phenol into the heart, into the gentle heart one had heard beating under one's lips in the dusk of the past. And since the exact form of her death had not been recorded, Mira kept dying a great number of deaths in one's mind and undergoing a great number of resurrections, only to die again and again led away by a trained nurse, inoculated with filth, tetanus bacilli, broken glass, gassed in a sham shower bath with prussic acid, burned alive in a pit on a gasoline-soaked pile of beechwood. According to the investigator Penin had happened to talk to in Washington, the only certain thing was that being too weak to work, though still smiling, still able to help other Jewish women, she was selected to die and was cremated only a few days after her arrival in Buchenwald, in the beautifully wooded Grosser Ettersburg, as the region is resoundingly called. It is an hour's stroll from Weimar, where what Goethe heard their Schiller, Weiland, the inimitable Kotzebue, and others, 
Aberwarum, but why, Dr. Hagen, the gentlest of souls alive, would wail? Why had one to put that horrid camp so near? For indeed, it was near, only five miles from the cultural heart of Germany. That nation of universities, as the president of Waynedale College, renowned for his use of the mot just, had so elegantly phrased it when reviewing the European situation in a recent commencement speech, along with the compliment he paid another torture house, Russia, the country of Tolstoy, Stanislavski, Raskolnikov, and other great and good men. Penin slowly walked under the solemn pines. The sky was dying. He did not believe in an autocratic God. He did believe, dimly, in a democracy of ghosts. The souls of the dead, perhaps, formed committees, and these, in continuous session, attended to the destinies of the quick. The mosquitoes were getting bothersome. Time for tea. Time for a game of chess with Chateau. That strange spasm was over. One could breathe again. On the distant crest of the knoll, at the exact spot where Grebinev's easel had stood a few hours before, two dark figures in profile were silhouetted against the ember-red sky. They stood there closely, facing each other. One could not make out from the road whether it was the Poroshin girl and her beau, or Nina Bolotov and young Poroshin, or merely an emblematic couple placed with easy art on the last page of Penin's fading day. Nine Two Y's Red By is produced and commissioned by New York's Nine Two Y Unterberg Poetry Center, a home for live readings and literature for over 80 years. To invite more authors into your home, subscribe to Nine Two Y's Red By wherever you download podcasts. If you're able, please visit 92y.org/helpnow to donate to support Nine Two Y and our new digital programming. Thank you, and thank you for listening. Find more great recordings at 92y.org slash redby.